0: Good morning, everyone. We'll get started with our Sunday school lesson on family worship. Uh, before we get into it, let's, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and learn more, learn more about you and your word. Um, and we thank you for all of the families that are represented here and the blessing they are to your church and we ask that this uh, lesson would be a blessing to them and that it would, uh, it would be edifying to their um, family's practice of devotion in their homes. And we pray that this would be um, for your glory and uh, the, the furtherance of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get into the, the lesson itself, I wanted to say something about why I chose this lesson. It, it you know, There's more interesting things maybe uh, that you could think of to do a lesson on. I could have done something on eschatology or something really exciting. But I picked family worship for the first lesson uh, kind of to show you where I'm coming from. Uh, one of the reasons why the session called me Uh, to minister to this church is to work on the youth group and youth ministries and things like that. And I want to kind of give you a peek into my philosophy of youth ministry. um, Mainly that it's not just the church's job to, uh, to disciple the youth and the children of a church. It's a cooperative effort between the parents and the church. This is what our uh, Church's book of church order says in chapter 63, in the supreme task of religious education, parents should cooperate with the church. So it's a cooperative effort and that's what I want to communicate with this lesson. Um, so whatever you know, programs, whatever groups that we start as a church for our youth um, and our children, that doesn't absolve the responsibility of parents to also be discipling their children. And one really important way to do that is family worship. So that's, that's a quick look into why I'm doing this. Um, so now let's get into the lesson. W- what is family worship? That's what we'll start with. What do I mean when I talk about family worship? It might not be something that everyone's familiar with. <clears throat> and first, what is worship itself? Some people have different um, opinions on what consists of worship. Some people have a broader view. Some people have a more narrow view. I tend to think of it more narrowly. Um, You can see the the definition that I have on that outline. Worship is the distinct act of appearing before the triune God to seek grace from the ordinary means and to thank and praise God for his grace in religious rites and ceremonies. That's the definition of worship that I kind of uh, work with. It's, It's very specific, and it's usually what we're doing on the Lord's Day in the gathered church. We're uh, receiving grace from scripture, from the sacraments, and we're praising and thanking God for his grace uh, through prayer, through singing, through hearing uh, the word preached. So that's, that's what worship is. And you can see that the most important actions of worship come from God. Worship isn't a time in which we are trying to win God over when we're trying to earn his favor. That's not what it is. Worship is when God gives us his grace and we respond by thanking and praising him. So all of our actions in worship consist in responding to God's saving action. We respond to his call to worship by gathering for worship. We respond to his law by confessing our sins. We respond to his gospel by trusting in Jesus and giving thanks. So all of what we do in worship is responding to God's saving action toward us. And as New Covenant believers, we worship on Sundays in public. And this is the most important day of the week for us. This is when we gather together to receive God's grace and to worship him publicly as a church. But we're also called to worship throughout the week, privately. So this, this is what um, our book of church order says. It says, in addition to public worship, it is the duty of each person in secret and of every family in private to worship God. So not only are we to worship together on Sundays, but we're to worship throughout the week in our homes privately um, as individuals and as families. So now a quick word on the difference between family worship and what we're probably more used to, which is personal devotion or quiet time. Uh, I think the church in America has done a pretty good job of emphasizing personal devotion, you know, that time Uh, of your day when you read scripture by yourself, you pray. That's been a really good emphasis that the American church has placed on individual Christians. And this is something that Christians should obviously strive to do. It's very important to expose yourself to those means of grace, to be daily reading scripture and and praying. Um, And Reformed churches have also emphasized this. This has been a, you know, it's not absent from Reformed churches. But the Reformed tradition has place a little bit more emphasis on family worship. Uh, For example, you can see it in Westminster Confession, chapter 21, uh, section 6. It says, uh, it it calls individual devotion secret worship, and it calls family worship uh, private worship. And I had a quote from that, but I think that's later on. Um, But you might not also realize that the Westminster Assembly came up with many more documents than just the Westminster Confession and the Shorter Catechism. You know, it came up with a public directory of worship, um, all these other documents, including a family, a directory of family worship. And this is a document that is, it's doing just that, it's giving direction to families on how they ought to worship throughout the week um, as a household. It opens with these words, Besides the public worship in congregations, it is expedient and necessary that secret worship of each person alone and private worship of families be pressed and set up. And so it goes on to say that it's the responsibility of pastors and heads of households to ensure that families are practicing individual devotion and family worship. And so it's, it's concerned with both uh, you know personal devotion and family worship, but the emphasis is really on family worship um, it, 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 it gives guidance for both, but it spends much more time on the latter and it, it shows that it's a con- family worship and personal devotion is a concern not only for the household but also for the church at large it 's the pastor it says it's the pastor 's responsibility and the head of the household's responsibility to ensure that these things are being practiced. And I think this special concern for family worship in the Reformed tradition reflects our view of the covenant, our view of covenant baptism, that children are included as members of the covenant by virtue of their birth in believing families. This is a recognition that God didn't drastically change the way he related to believers in the New Testament. In other words, he continues to deal with family units. And so we're going to look at that really quickly. We're going to look at how God has dealt with families throughout Scripture. And of course, this is under the heading, Why Should We Be Concerned With Family Worship? And the answer is because it's biblical. First, it's biblical in the early narratives when we see the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, worshiping as family units, patriarchal family units. So before the nation of Israel, the community of believers took the form of patriarchal family units and they worshipped as families. Uh, When Abraham entered into covenant with God, his whole household entered with him. Um, All the males of his household took the sacrament of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. And this is because God promised Abraham to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's in Genesis seventeen seven. the The covenant promise is not just for Abraham, it's to his children and to his household. And so it wouldn't have been enough for Abraham to worship God on his own as an individual, but he had to lead his family in worshiping God because it wasn't just his God, it was his whole family's God. God says this about Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 9. For I have chosen him, that is Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You'll notice there in Genesis 18 that God says he's chosen Abraham so that he can command his family and his household to worship God to keep the way of the Lord. And so Abraham's whole family was God's people, and so they were to be led by Abraham into worshiping God. You can also see this kind of patriarchal, patriarchal worship in the book of Job, which records a quite early narrative. Job uh, 1, verse 5, we see Job offering sacrifices on behalf of his children um, to atone for their sin. Something unique that we see in Job, and so in this patriarchal period of redemptive history, families only worshipped together as families. There was no there was no greater unit for them to worship in. But when the nation uh, of Israel becomes a nation, it, it goes from a family to a nation. The principle of family worship didn't go away, even though they there was more uh, there was a bigger unit than just the family, but it did change. So no longer were the heads of households to build altars and offer sacrifices on behalf of their families, like we see in Job, or like we see Abraham doing. Rather, the sacrificial system was uh, tied to the, the tabernacle and the temple. And so priests were to be the only ones to offer those sacrifices, and it was only to be done in the temple. But God, uh, even, even though this part changed, God specifically commanded his uh, the parents of Israelites to practice family worship and instruction. We see this in Deuteronomy 6, verses four through seven. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and she'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And those activities that it's you know saying you have to talk about the words of the law when you do these things, Those are that's a way of just saying at all times. At any point in time, you should be talking about God's law. It's a way of talking about the whole life. And so we can see it's the family's responsibility to teach their children to love the Lord. That's what we see in Deuteronomy 6. And this is because the covenant continued to be with Israelites and their children. We see this in Leviticus 26.12. It's kind of a repetition of what we saw in the promise to Abraham. God says, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. And so Israelites had, to, had a continued responsibility to lead their children in loving and worshiping the Lord. That's what we see in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus. Israelites didn't stop practicing family worship even though there was a broader assembly of believers. And this is what we see in the New Testament as well. When the New Covenant Church of Christ fulfilled the Old Covenant nation of Israel, family worship didn't go away but it did change in many important ways. Of course, the sacrificial system itself was abolished since their purpose was always to be a type and shadow of Christ's ultimate sacrifice. So since Christ died on the cross, there's no more need to offer sacrifices even as family units. The elements of worship changed so that the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper replaced the sacraments of circumcision and Passover. And even the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they were more closely associated with the gathered church, so that families could not administrate these sacraments uh, for themselves, but only in the church by pastors. That's something unique. In the Old Testament, families would celebrate Passover, you know, the meal by themselves, but that's not what we do in the New Covenant. We celebrate it as a church family. Another change in the New Testament is that Believers can be married to unbelievers, and of course I don't mean that, you know, a person who is not married yet and who believes in Jesus should seek out someone who doesn't believe in Jesus to marry. That's not what I'm saying. We're told by Paul to marry only in the Lord, but it's possible for a, a married couple who are not believers, one of them can convert to Christianity and the other one might not, And Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that the believing spouse is not to divorce the unbelieving spouse. And so this is unique in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, we see in Ezra chapter 10, when the Israelites married uh, foreign women, they were commanded to divorce them. It was forbidden to have religious intermarriages of any kind in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, this has changed. And so this has serious implications for family worship. It means that some families might not have two believing parents. It might mean that a a wife might believe and a husband might not. And that means that the head of the household, the husband, is not going to be leading family worship. It'll have to be the wife. This is a change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And another one is that in the New Testament, remaining unmarried... Is a blessed position, and in some cases even a preferred position. Again, this is very different from the Old Testament, when getting married and having children was expected in all cases. Especially since Old Testament saints had the responsibility of carrying on the the the, the seed of the woman, whose end goal was the Messiah. They were carrying on this blessed genealogy to culminate uh, in Jesus, culminate in Jesus. Um but in the New Testament some believers are called to singleness which means that some believers might not live in a family of believers to worship with. And so these are all the changes that we see in the New Testament when it comes to families. But despite all of them, believers are still called to raise their children in the covenant, knowing, worshiping and loving their God. We still have this command to worship as families, to raise our children up as members of the covenant, and that's because the covenant continued to be with Christians and their children. We see this in Acts two thirty-nine, where Peter says, "The promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself." And so we're told explicitly. The covenant promise is to us and our children, and so we ought to raise up our children in the Lord as believers. And we're given given explicit commands and examples of Christians doing this in the New Testament. I have them listed here. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think it's significant that fathers specifically are commanded to do this. Uh, it's, it's their role. You know, it, earlier in Ephesians, Paul says that the husband is the head of her wife as Christ is the head of the church. It's, it's the special role of fathers and husbands to lead their family in worshiping the Lord, in bringing their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But we see in 2 Timothy that it's not only the father's responsibility This is an example, not a command, but I think it has serious implications. In uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, we read that I am reminded of your sincere faith, speaking of Timothy, Paul speaking to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so we see this. Uh, this family in which the grandmother and the mother are raising up their son in the Lord. Also, later on in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 14-15, through 15, Paul says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not for certain what Paul means when he says, knowing from whom you learned it. But because he says how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, I think it's fair to say that he's probably talking about Timothy's mother and grandmother who taught him the faith. And so we can see it's not only fathers, it's also mothers who have this responsibility to raise their children up in the Lord And so now that, that's, that's the reason, that's the first reason why we ought to be concerned with family worship because it's biblical. But the other reason is because it's distinctly reformed and that means it's confessional and even constitutional. I already pointed this out earlier, but whereas the American church has only focused on personal devotion, maybe not only, but especially on personal devotion, reformed churches have focused also especially on family worship. And it's, it's confessional, which means it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I hinted at this earlier, but this is the full quote from uh, chapter 21, section 6. God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in public assemblies. So it's emphasizing family worship, personal worship, and public worship. Again, I've also pointed out it's constitutional. It's in our book of church order, which is the constitution of the PCA. Chapter 63, section 3 says, Family worship, which should be observed by every family, consists in prayer, reading the scriptures, and singing praises, or in some briefer form of outspoken recognition of God. And so we can see the three the three vital um, aspects of family worship right there, which is kind of a preview it's reading the scriptures, singing pra- uh, praises, and prayer. So it's, it's reformed, but of, of course, family worship is also spiritually and relationally beneficial. Uh, the Book of Church Order 63 2, speaking of secret worship, that is individual worship, but it applies to family worship as well, it says the many advantages arising from a consci- conscientious performance of these duties are best known to those who are found in faithful discharge of them. In other words, you know the benefit of family worship if you've been doing it. It's extremely beneficial, not only for your knowledge of Scripture, for your own spiritual edification, uh, but it's also beneficial for your, your relationship to your family. You grow closer together as a family when you're worshiping together. And I think it can be especially of benefit to children to see the example of their parents in prayer and in singing and reading the Bible and having the opportunity to ask them open and honest questions about their doubts, about their uncertainties about faith, having that space for children to just openly and honestly talk to their parents about their faith. I think that's extremely, extremely beneficial to children and of course, as I said, it can be a model for children as they grow up and uh, uh, start to practice their own personal devotions. And so that's the benefit, that's, that's the reason why we ought to be concerned with family worship. Now a quick note on who is included. What, who do I mean when I'm talking about family? Of course, parents and children, that's become obvious throughout the lesson so far. As I've already noted, it's the special responsibility of fathers to ensure that their families are practicing worship together. and it's the responsibility to lead the family in worship by reading and praying. But as we saw again from Second Timothy, it's also important for mothers to be involved with leading family worship, especially if the father is an unbeliever or absent or neglectful. And of course, it's important for parents to involve their children in family worship, not just reading to them, not just praying for them, but allowing them to answer questions, to ask questions, and to pray themselves. It's very important for children to be actively involved. What about married couples without children? That has been my wife and my uh, state for the past two years. And we have been practicing family worship, you know, not perfectly. There are some, you know, seasons of several weeks at a time where we forget to do it, we're neglectful. But when we do it, it's just the two of us. There's no, you know, we don't have children to, to lead and worship. But we are exceptionally edified when we are in this practice of family worship, just the two of us. I asked her, because I, 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 I wrote this down, and I was like, well, I guess I don't know if Michaela actually has been benefited from family worship. So I texted her and asked her, and she sent a very encouraging text about how it's been beneficial to her. Um, so, so yeah, family worship is for married couples, whether you have children or not, whether you're struggling to have children, or whether your children are all grown up and out of the house family worship is still for you. You can still practice it even if, it's just, even if it's just the two of you. And of course that leaves the question, what about people who are single? As I've already said, it can be a blessed and preferred state for a believer to be single in the New Covenant. But that means that you don't live with a family to worship with, and so your worship will look more just like personal, private worship. If you are single and you live with roommates, you may try to involve them in your worship see if your roommates are interested and of course that will be different there's no head of household because you're all roommates but you can still worship together as a household which is pretty special um, if you're single and living alone this guidance can you can apply it to your own personal devotion you can apply the same principles or you can practice family worship when you have people visiting your home uh, for dinner or staying the night if you have family or guests over you can practice this with them So that's a word on who is included. Now, how should you worship as a family? Of course, I've already pointed out the basic elements, reading scripture, praying together, and singing. So first, the father should lead the family by reading any passage of scripture. What book you read is your decision, but I would recommend you stick to a book and read it all the way through so that you can understand the entire message of the book. And of course, there are matters of wisdom to consider. You shouldn't read Song of Songs as a family. Reading one of the Gospels is a good place to start. If you're stumped, just start with Mark or Matthew. Just read a Gospel. Read the, the, the story of Jesus and his Gospel. Um... And how long of a passage you read in one sitting is up to you. It's up to the ability of your children and their attention span. Um, But you could read as, as little as a paragraph and as much as a couple chapters. And after reading, the head of the household should lead a discussion and brief explanation of the meaning of the passage. And this can be the most daunting part of family worship. This can be the reason why some families just don't, practice it at all, because it's it's kind of scary to consider, how do I lead a discussion about this passage? That seems like a big responsibility. And if this would cause you to avoid family worship, then just skip it. Just read scripture, pray, sing. You don't have to worry about this if that's going to cause you. It's better to do family worship without discussing the meaning of the passage than to not do it at all. But I would encourage you to take advantage of some of the resources that I've included in the back of your handout. Um, If you're you're not confident about explaining a given passage, you can still ask questions and lead a discussion. Um, If you have time beforehand, you can look at the passage for a few minutes and just jot down some questions, maybe that you have. Maybe you don't have the answers you can just jot down some questions um, that will get your family thinking about the passage. For example, if you're reading about one of Jesus' healings, you could ask, what did this healing teach us about Jesus? What did it teach us about his power and his care for the sick? So you can ask that kind of question. You can prepare beforehand if you have time. But there are also lots of resources that I've mentioned. With discussion questions written down for you pre-prepared, for every chapter of the Bible. Um, I th- I'm thinking specifically of the Family Worship Bible Guide. And I think they took uh, discussion questions based off of the Reformation Study Bible, and it's for every chapter of the Bible. And so, you know, whatever book you're reading, you can open this uh, Family Worship Bible Guide and you can lead a discussion straight from that book without having to have the anxiety of leading your family by writing those questions yourself or by um, coming up with that on your own. Um, And then, of course, there's the other one, Family Worship, which is, I think it's a similar thing. It has... Um, maybe by week, it's discussion questions. I've not used either of these resources, but I've looked at both of them, just samples online, and they look very helpful. Um, and I'm sure there are some parents who feel the opposite way. Some parents are worried about having to lead discussion and, e- and explaining a passage, but some parents are probably very enthusiastic about doing that, which is wonderful. But to the enthusiastic parents, I would give a warning. Don't try to preach a sermon to your children around the dinner table. That's not the purpose of family worship. Um, It's better to lead a discussion, to get the children involved with answering questions, asking questions, um, and to involve everyone as much as possible. So after reading and discussing scripture together, the head of the household uh, should lead the family in prayer. And of course they should pray for the specific needs of each member of the family. as well as specific needs in the church. Um, And they can pray more broadly, of course, as well. But it's pretty special uh, to pray for each member of the family, to have other people in the family pray for other people in the family. It's a special thing to pray together and for one another. Um, Of course, it's a good idea to help your children pray. And you can do this either by leading them in a written prayer. Of course, the Lord's Prayer is a great place to start. Or you can, you know, if they're old enough, if, if um, they're wanting to, you can let them pray after you have prayed. So you can kind of go in a circle or something like that and pray one after another. And then after you're done praying, it's really special to close family worship by singing a song together. This is something that my wife and I started um, at some point, and it's it's been really encouraging for us. Um, I highly encourage you to sing a psalm not because, you know, they're just better than anything else, but because it doubles as scripture memorization. When you're singing, you know, you memorize so much better by singing a song, and then when you're singing scripture, not only is it um, God's word itself, but you're memorizing God's word itself. And to do that, there's a really helpful uh, app for your phone that you can get uh, called the Trinity Psalter Hymnal app. And so, of course, it has hymns as well if you want to sing hymns. Um it's like $10, which made me not buy it for a while, but it's, it's worth it, I promise. Um, and so whichever song you sing, it doesn't, you know, you, you don't have to sing a song, psalm, you don't have to sing a hymn, you can sing whatever you want. Um, but whatever song you sing, pick one and stick with it for a couple weeks. That way you can learn it, you can meditate on it, meditate on the meaning, and uh, be more encouraged by it, by sitting with it for a while. And so here, so just some other considerations for what you might include in family worship, how you might um, administrate it. This is also a good time to work on scripture or catechism memorization. This is something that my wife and I do. We've been taking the time to memorize the shorter catechism. And so when we come to family worship, um, at some point we will do some review together, ask each other a couple catechism questions. If you're memorizing scripture, this is a good time to do that as well. Um, If you have young children, you can start with, it's called, I think it's called My First Catechism. It's a very simplified version. You know, the question is, um, who made me? The answer is God. Very simple questions, but you can pretty quickly transition to the shorter catechism and work on that. and and you can this is something that my wife and do as well my, my wife and I do as well you can read a book together um, we kind of I try to alternate so that we're not doing too much you know at the same time so I try to alternate between catechism and reading a book together um, but you can read a godly book together we're reading gentle and lowly right now another way to encourage you together and to kind of broaden what you're um, reading together what you're learning together. Another consideration is, you know, if you have children and you're worshiping with them, be sensitive to their ages and abilities. And this means whatever you do, don't expect a three-year-old to sit still for an hour during family worship. And if even if you don't have children, I would encourage you to keep family worship to 30 minutes, or 30 or 40 minutes. You know, around there is a good sweet spot. And that doesn't sound like a lot of time to pack all of these things into, but You know, reading a chapter of scripture takes five minutes or less. Uh, Discussing it can, you know, you can go for a long time sometimes, but you can keep it to 10 minutes maybe. Singing a song takes less than five minutes, um, and memorization work can be limited to 10 minutes. So it's definitely doable. You have to, you know, you have to be on top of your time, but I would encourage you to keep it under an hour at least. It It can get a little too cumbersome to do more than that, especially for children. Another way you can be sensitive to the age and ability of your children is by including activities and crafts for them, doing things that will get, you know, their bodies involved as well as their minds. Um, and that, that can, you know, help with their attention span um, and even their retention of what they're learning. So if, you're, if you have really young children, um, you can work in hand motions to your memorization Of scripture or catechism, or just singing. You can do some hand motions, Um, you could work in a game that's somehow relevant to the scripture you're studying, or you can just have coloring pages that they can work on while you're reading or asking questions about your scripture passage. Um, Of course, if you have young children, the more you're prepared beforehand, the more smooth it's going to go. I know it sounds like a lot of work to prepare ahead of time, but if you just Google coloring sheets for and then any passage of scripture, you'll get a ton of stuff that you can just print out and have ready. So like parenting in general, family worship with young children takes some creativity, but the hard work is worth it. So consider putting that extra work of preparing ahead of time in. And last, the, the consideration is when should you practice family worship. I think that maybe this is the second most daunting thing about family worship, the first one being, you know, the responsibility of explaining and discussing scripture, and this one being, do I have to do this every day? Uh, It can be a little bit daunting at first. My first thing that I'll say is make it consistent. Pick a day and time and stick to it so that it becomes almost a tradition in your household, a habit, something that you're always used to doing. Um what part of the day you do it is dependent on your family's schedule. After dinner around the table is a great start. Um, For some families, it might need to be after breakfast or something like that. It doesn't matter as long as it works with your schedule consistently um, throughout the week and throughout the uh, coming weeks. Um, Of course, every family is different with different schedules, and it's okay if you're not all around the table on any given... Day, You know, if some kids have sports or are spending the night at a friend's house, it's okay to just worship as a partial family if some kids are off doing other activities. And it's okay if they need to do those things. You you know, it's not a reason to not do sports just because you've picked this time and and day to do family worship. You can be flexible on that. Um, And it's okay if you want to eat dinner at the couch and watch a movie on occasion. But I would encourage you to pick a day and time when everyone's normally around and when you're committed to eating around the table and worshiping as a family afterward. A time when you're committed to you know, not watching a movie. You know, any other day you can, but this day we're going to sit together and uh, discuss some scripture. And so of course, uh, you, know, you families out there, you know this. Kids, like adults, thrive on routine. And if you get them into a routine of family worship, they will eventually be the ones reminding you that you need to do family worship before bedtime. And that's a great excuse to stay up a little bit later. Uh, and, and how often should you do this? Every day is a good goal. If you read the um, Westminster Directory of Family Worship, I'm pretty sure it says you should do it every day. It's a great goal, but it's often unrealistic for us. You know, maybe we even have Bible studies in the evening, we don't have the time, maybe we have sporting events, that kind of thing. Um, a more realistic goal, if you're starting for the first time, is just to go for once a week. One day a week, practice family worship. If you already have a, a practice of family worship, you can make your goal higher if you want to, but again, keep your schedule somewhat flexible so that you have room for other activities and that you're not, you're not feeling constrained by the practice. If you're starting from absolute scratch, you haven't done anything like this before, you can try by starting on Sunday evenings. It's a great way to close the Lord's Day. You've worshiped in the morning, now you can worship in the evening together as a family. And that means if you are used to going to community groups, if you're if you're able to do that, which is a wonderful thing, that means you're only doing it once every two weeks. You're doing family worship every other week, alternating with community group. And if you don't go to community group, which you should, but if you don't, then you're doing it once a week. And then after getting into the rhythm of Sunday evenings, you can add a weekday as well. And ultimately, if you want to, you can build up to every day if that's your goal. But again, allow for some flexibility. You don't want family worship to feel oppressive to kids or adults as if it's keeping them from doing the fun things that they want to do. You know, if if your kid suddenly starts, you know, he wants to do baseball, and it's in the evenings, then you can start doing family worship in the mornings before school, something like that. And the goal of family worship isn't just, you know, to read scripture, to read scripture, it's not just um, to force your children to sit down and and be well-behaved for 30 minutes. The goal of family worship is to ground your children in scripture, to grow closer as families, as you are growing closer to the Lord, and to create a family environment in which children feel comfortable discussing Scripture, even their doubts and questions about it, discussing Scripture with their parents, and an environment in which parents and children are worshiping God together regularly. I think this is a great goal for us to have as families, and I hope that this lesson has helped you have that vision for your own families. If you have any questions about family worship, um, we have a microphone that you can speak into so we can all hear you? Question right here.
1: More just a comment. I was going to say I think it's important for young families to remember that family worship will not always go well. We had one this Mm. week that devolved into a 15-minute tantrum. Mm. Um, (laughs) And so I know that there are a number of days where we've looked back and I've looked at my husband and we've just kind of (laughs) sighed. We're like, well, that didn't work. (laughs) Um, But the fact is that I think that's part of Christian parenting yeah. is continuing even when you fail and knowing God has the grace to cover whatever I did wrong here. Mm. Um, the other thing was that when we when we started doing our, our, we've done family devotion a long time, but started really doing scripture <coughs> memory. If they got old enough to really start getting into it. We realized it was too much to do all at one time. Mm. So we break it up. Now, um, when I'm homeschooling the kids, often while we're in the car, we will do our scripture memory. We will do our... Um, if we're doing cate, we go back and forth with catechism. If we're whatever we're doing, we're doing the memory stuff during the day, and then when Daddy's home and we're doing the lesson and the prayer, we break it up because I've just found that's mm. how my kids just can't seem to do it all at once. It's just yep. a little too much, so we've had to we've had to break it up.
0: <laughs> that's really helpful. I appreciate the first comment as well because you know, even just Michaela and I, there have been times at family worship where we devolve into a theological fight <laughs> because I didn't handle a question well or whatever it was. So it's, you know, you have to have grace um, and, and keep on even if it doesn't seem like it's helpful or even if you're frustrated at times. That's good. Thank you. Any other questions or comments about, about this? Right here. we've used uh, tim keller's the love songs of jesus it's a good format mm. short but you really get to know the psalms through that mm. and uh encourage really uh, recommend that one thank you the and love what? songs of jesus yeah it's awesome songs. the songs of jesus songs of jesus by keller by tim keller good resource thank you any other tips recommendations If there's nothing else, I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity that we have to read it together as families. um, How widely spread English translations are, and that we're able to read them together and, and sing together and praise you as families. We thank you for including our families, including our children in the covenant. What a blessing that is. And we ask that you would bless the families of Spring Meadows that they would be edified um, in their homes as well as here in public worship, and that we would, um, together with one voice, worship our great God and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.